This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Sonia Diaz, and I am the executive director of UCLA's Latino Policy and Politics Initiative. It is a multifaceted think tank focused on the state and local policies and innovations across domestic policy issues. We're lucky enough to have a number of our faculty participate with the law review today, um, and we're asked by Professor Carbato and given the opportunity to really think through dynamics around policy, law, and community organizing. And I am thankful for the opportunity and also really, really excited about our guests, that many of whom traveled very far to be here today. Um, and I'm going to introduce them. And this panel is going to serve as a different model of interrogation of the theme. We're going to have a conversation that's going to be moderated. And there's a lot of interesting uh, particulars that are going on both in what just happened in November 2018 and then what is to come in 2020. So let me start with introductions of our panelists. Uh, Marisa Arona is the Director of Local Safety Solutions at Californians for Safety and Justice and also the Alliance for Safety and Justice. She mobilizes systems and community leaders throughout the state to implement safety strategies rooted in dignity and smart justice rather than over-incarceration. Jeanette Zanipatin is the California State Director for the Drug Policy Alliance. Jeanette and her team are collaborating with Latinx organizations across the state to push for drug policy reform. Tomas Robles is the Executive Director of Lucha Arizona, which is Living United for Change in Arizona. He's a grassroots organizer and activist who advocates for the rights of immigrants, workers, and veterans. And finally, Juan Cartagena is the president and general counsel of Latino Justice Pearl Def, a national civil rights organization with the goal of changing and challenging discriminatory practices through advocacy and impact litigation. This panel is exploring the intersections between criminal justice reform and the ballot box. Um, in particular, we're going to be talking about what direct democracy measures, whether ballot initiatives or referendums, have propelled, propelled what we're, we're terming affirmative criminal justice reforms. Affirmative insofar as it is in opposite to regressive. Um, this decade, with special attention to jurisdictions with large Latinx populations. We're going to pay particular attention to Florida's Amendment 4, California's Propositions 47 and 57, and a handful of drug referendums across the country. And I'm going to start with one. One. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I want to see if you could provide the audience with a cursory overview of how litigation legislation, and administrative reforms contrast to direct democracy efforts with respect to affirmative criminal justice reform? Sure. So first of all, thank you very much. Um, I head up Latino Justice Pearl Def. The Pearl Def is Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund, headquartered in New York City. We have an office in Orlando, Florida, for over five years, and a satellite office in Long Island as well. We do 
amazing work with an amazing team of attorneys and activists and organizers. Your question, Sonia, is critical. Um, Amendment 4, which I'm going to talk about in a little more detail later, is the culmination of a lot of work that I personally have been involved with, and both at the Community Service Society, where I worked at before, and now at Latino Justice, where I work at now, to try to do everything possible to change the outrageous deprivation of the most basic of citizenship rights, the right to vote, from a category of people simply because they committed a crime. I've been involved in battles in court. I've been involved in related battles regarding where you count their bodies for prison gerrymandering purposes. Thought we had a really good run of trying to challenge these things under the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Section 2, and got stopped in every, every step of the way. We were litigating cases um, jointly with our colleagues at the Brennan Center at the ACLU. I worked directly with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund to try to do this work in multiple states. We had a rash of a handful of states that were critically important to try to show that the Voting Rights Act of Section 2 also should be extended to outlaw felon disfranchisement, and we lost those rounds at the Court of Appeals level because of decisions that basically said that Congress couldn't possibly have meant outlawing something that has been around the fabric of American law since the 1800s in many states. It couldn't possibly have meant it unless they would have said it directly. And that the 10th Amendment actually allows, and especially the line of cases recently regarding congruity and proportionality, the power of Congress to actually regulate what's happening in the states, we lost on every ground. The case that had the most amazing promise was that of Washington State, Farrakhan versus Washington. But in every one of these states, and this one I let you know, this first round of litigation, which did not succeed, each one of these states, you have to recognize, had Latinx people directly involved in bringing these lawsuits. At least two of the four major cases were prisoner-led. That means these individuals that I, I got the privilege of calling my clients filed pro se actions in federal court challenging felon disfranchisement, both under Section 2 and under the Constitution. So in many ways, I was following the strategy of clients that knew exactly what they had to do. One would think that in the history of Jim Crow and in a history throughout this country in which intentional discrimination can, of course, be part and parcel of decisions by legislatures, especially in the South, to disenfranchise the African-American community, that we would have had a a treasure trove of evidence that evidence of intentional discrimination, and we did. We had it in New York since 1821. We had it in Florida. But there were lapses in legislators, legislation, legislatures excuse me, throughout the late 1800s, early 1900s, that the courts repeatedly then said that break in the actual respite, maybe one year in New York, perhaps one and a half years in Florida, meant that the intentions of a previous legislature cannot be foisted upon the intentions of a subsequent legislature who decides to reenact felon disfranchisement, perhaps without the same motivation. So we lost on equal protection grounds too. So this fight to restore the right to vote for people who have committed crimes has been stonewalled at every step in the way by the judiciary that does not care about what it really means in today's world to, be, to, to have such a loss of political power in so many of these communities. And that's why we had to finally resort to the ballot box. Yeah. And thanks for that. And, and I'm going to segue to Jeanette and then Tomas. So one of the reasons 
I conceived this panel was that direct democracy and ballot initiatives are not things that I often see as affirmative, nor do I see them as avenues for mobility and opportunity for the most marginalized. And I'm talking about my own direct experience, having grown up here, also in East Los Angeles, in the 1990s and having Prop 187, which sought to criminalize immigrants, and Prop 209, which outlawed and eliminated affirmative action up to um, anti-Spanish uh, in school, so English-only propositions. Now, one of the interesting things is that we have someone here from, from Arizona, which in many ways has, has carried the legacy of restrictive, regressive, discriminatory, direct democracy in the state. And so this question is for Jeanette and Juan. So ballot initiatives in direct democracy have been vehicles for marginalization, disenfranchisement. And so Arizona's Proposition 203, which was English only, the ballot initiatives that I mentioned here in California, including Proposition 8, which was passed by the voters of this state in 2008. What's different this decade? Not last decade, not 21st century, but this decade with respect to criminal justice reforms at the ballot box. So um, just a little bit of background. My name, uh, as um, uh, Sonia mentioned, my name is Jeanette, but I've only been on my current job for four weeks. I'm very new to drug policy. Um, but prior to coming to drug policy, I had been in Sacramento for 16 years working on policy work um, having to do with immigrant rights, civil rights, and voting rights. I uh, came to DPA from MALDEF, and I'd been uh, MALDEF's key policy person in Sacramento for the past nine years. So I've, I've worked on a lot of these measures having to do with driver's licenses, ICE police collaboration, the sanctuary bill, and things like that. So I come full circle, and I was explaining to Sonia this last night that I actually went to law school when Prop 187 was passed. And so if you can imagine, I, I went out of state um, to Washington to go to law school, and the first thought that came to my mind is like, what is happening to California? I grew up in San Francisco um, near the Mission District um, where I had neighbors from all over Latin America. For me, having that cultural diversity was just um, something that I really took for granted. And so when I went to Washington State and started law school, it really hit me how, uh, how problematic things were in California, right? You, a lot of folks here were probably too young to remember, but there is a lot of um, really awful anti-immigrant propaganda back in the 90s um, around, uh, around you know, Prop 187 and you know, vilifying immigrants, sort of what, exactly what we're seeing today. And so I think what's different is um, obviously you know, the demographics of California has changed significantly. We have a lot of folks that have been, because of Prop 187, we saw Latinos um, actually wanting to naturalize, wanting to vote, wanting to participate in direct democracy. Um, my parents were from El Salvador and Ecuador, never wanted to become a citizen because, you know, like everybody else, they dreamt of going back home and retiring back in their home countries. But once 187 happened, um, both my parents naturalized and really felt that civic duty to make a stand, make a statement at the ballot box. And so I think those are some of the things that we all know has changed. The other component, I think, that in California is, you know, we've seen so many uh, regressive measures that, that came through the ballot box, but we also saw this convergence around criminal justice reform, right? We saw things like the Obama administration trying to pass things like secure communities. Then, you know, because we passed the Trust Act in 2012, 
um, they course corrected and created the priority enforcement program. And so we came back and also did a, a bill to also limit the way ICE and police were collaborating. So all of these things are happening at the state level, it, you know, simultaneously with bigger, broader criminal justice um, proposals. And so I think a lot of this convergence sort of came together to sort of demonstrate or uh, give us the opportunity or the window to actually use the ballot box as as a way to really pass some really progressive policies. So I think those are some of the things that um, that we see as, as positives. Prior to that, obviously, it was it was very regressive, and um, you know we we've seen some of the worst um, proposals from our initiative process and uh, transfer over also to Arizona as well. Yeah, Tomas. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first, I want to thank UCLA. And thank you, Sonia, for inviting me to this panel. Um, very humbled and, and very proud to be able to talk about uh, the work that Arizona's done. Um, you know, jokingly, everyone says that Arizona wants to be California, but I don't think Property 7 was what we had in mind. Um, and so SB 1070, so to get to SB 1070 in 2010, this anti-immigrant law that married 187, we have to take uh, a dive backwards because we saw the writing on the wall as initiatives were being uh, put out and um, certain legislation was being passed. So Arizona still has truth in sentencing laws. And so you have to serve 85% of your sentence in Arizona, no matter the crime. And so that was passed in the 90s. And um, as we kept going throughout that decade and into the 2000s, we started seeing more um, subtle, if not completely direct attacks. Um, we've already mentioned English only as a uh, proposition. Prop 300 completely eliminated uh, scholarships and public aid to um, undocumented immigrants uh, in Arizona. And so from there, we started seeing that these attacks were not only gaining um, traction in terms of being passed, but they were actually popular in the state. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that as a Latino community and as communities of color in Arizona, we just did not come out to vote. And so um, once SB 1070 passed, by the time it passed, uh, Arizona Latinos made up just 10% of the voting electorate. Um, and so that was a reason. It was such a supermajority that even Latino Democrats were absent to vote no on SB 1070. And so that kind of shame that, that I think we felt as progressives, but mainly community members, we saw the need um, to mobilize. And when SB 1070 was passed, um, 15,000 people showed up at the Capitol. Youths that were 10 years old marched miles, five, six miles in the summer heat in Arizona to show up in the Capitol and show strength on why this type of legislation would not, we would not accept. And that led into nine years of us building an infrastructure, an infrastructure that would create a leadership pipeline for communities of color to learn how to organize, to learn how the law works. We did Know Your Rights sessions. Um, we continuously had free immigration um, forums so we can help people apply for citizenship, residency, work permits, and then when DACA was passed in 2012, we did that as well. And so as we kept building and as we um, kept increasing our, our voting presence, we saw the ballot measures as a way for us to, um, to take advantage and pass progressive policies. So in, in 2016, we passed the minimum wage, and we're looking into 2020 partners in Arizona looking to remove truth and sentencing from um, our laws and try to really create a more just criminal justice system through that initiative process. Thanks for that. 
Now, Marissa, you were intimately involved in some of the most robust criminal justice reforms that we saw enacted through direct democracy. And I'm talking in particular to California's Proposition 47 and then Prop 57. Can you do us a favor and talk through why the decision was made to architect these reforms through the ballot box as opposed to California State Capitol, Sacramento, or the governor's office or other means? Um, and, and what failures um, may have, have led to that and, and how you see uh, both your work moving forward in the state and beyond as integrating all of the things that Juan had mentioned, right? Whether it was litigation and advocacy to community organizing um, as, as we've seen your great success here. Yeah. Thank you. Is this on? Can you guys hear me? Um, I'm also very humbled and honored to be on this panel. Thank you, UCLA Law Review, uh, for this topic. Um, I was uh, the first class at Berkeley Law School after Prop 209. So in our entering class, there was one African-American male, and he had deferred from the year before. So in our class, entering 2000, no black men got it, uh, were accepted to UC Berkeley, and there were so few Latinos and Asian-Americans. There weren't enough to sort of populate any of the a student of color group, so we had to band together and create student of color um, activities. Uh, so I'm very uh, honored that UCLA Law Review is hosting this topic. Um, very quickly, some, some context leading up to why Prop 47 and why at that time. Um, so CSJ uh, was formed in 2013 and Prop 47 passed in 2014. So in that year, uh, Lenore, uh, our executive director, partnering with law enforcement and uh, elected, uh, elected officials um, wrote and ran the, and, and helped run this campaign. But leading up to that, uh, the issue of downgrading certain felony offenses to misdemeanors to address the collateral consequences of someone having a felony conviction on their record had been floated up in the legislature. I think they had tried maybe a couple of times to pass certain bills um, similar to Prop 47, something that would address felony convictions. And uh, let me um, ask a quick question. Um, how many of you might know how many restrictions are placed on you if you have a felony conviction, no matter how old the conviction is? Is it 100? Is it, raise your hand if I get to the right number. Is it 500 restrictions? Do you think it's 1,000? Anyone think it's 1,000? It's almost 5,000 restrictions. More than half are employment related. Uh, I think 73% are lifetime bans. A lot of them are occupational licensing requirements, many times that are um, discretionary decisions. If you had a felony conviction on your record before Prop 47, you could not be a barber. You could not be a licensed dog walker. You could not foster. Um, any children. You couldn't be a chaperone at your children's um, field trip. Um, and these are, and beyond that, educa um, educational barriers to scholarships, housing barriers, no matter how old the conviction was. And, you know, when, when you've paid your debt to society, even if you're off paper, off supervision, these barriers continue to haunt people for their, li their entire lives. And, um, Professor, the, the keynote, Professor Lopez, uh, sort of alluded to that. 
people would come out of prison and we do not make it easy. We still don't make it easy for you to succeed and not go back to prison. So Prop 47 came up as a way to address those collateral consequences, but also very importantly to address the overpopulation um, in uh, California prisons. And in 2011, there was the federal court order that we had to reduce our prison population. I think we were at 150 percent uh, capacity and the court said get down to about like 112 or something which was still uh, too crowded so the governor uh, in 2011 passed realignment and just moved prisoners from state prisons to county jails that just sort of moved the problem but we still weren't down low enough so there was we saw this need for what became part 47 importantly we didn't just go and sort of write up the law um, the the initiative to address this we, CSJ comes from a background of organizing crime survivors and before we even got to prop 47 we had spent 2012, 2013, uh, it was a founder circle actually of survivors of sexual assault, childhood sexual assault, um, all sorts of trauma that really got together and then wondered um, how do crime victims fare in California? Do they have access to services? Do they know how to access services? How do immigrant victims access services? And so we did a survey. We surveyed several thousand people across uh, California and found out what they were not accessing, and importantly, how they think we should respond to harm. Um, a, we shouldn't wait for crime to happen to do something about it. So everyone was, uh, we should prevent these issues, um, you know, by a margin of two to one, rehabilitation over punishment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, similar to that, in 2014, we partnered with National Council of La Raza, and we compiled this research that had been uh, done by the Tomas uh, Rivera Policy Institute, and in 2014, we released this report, which is in my bag, and I meant to bring it up to show it to you, and I have a bunch of copies, Latino Voices, the Impact of Criminal Justice Policies on Latinos in California, similar questions. Uh, and we learned all of this information. So we get to writing Prop 47. We partnered, uh, we're not Latino-led. Lenore Anderson is a white woman. We're a very multiracial organization. At the time, it was six or seven people. Um, and so we know what we don't know, right? We, we could identify the things we don't know. What is this going to be? Uh, what's the impact going to be on immigrant communities? And Latino-led, Latino-focused uh, organizations said, well, even if you downgrade a felony to a misdemeanor, if the sentence is still 365 days, that stays a deportable offense. What are you going to do about that? And so we collaborated, we co-sponsored a bill that changed that requirement, the sentencing requirement what a difference a day makes from 365 to 364. So there's sort of this strategy of sort of um, passing things at the legislature, running this uh, campaign, and then later, later I'll talk about the partnerships that were required for the grassroots effort to get Prop 47 and 57 passed, critical partnerships with PICO and Cali Calls and Latino-led organizations. But with Prop 47, similar to when my esteemed co-panelists have been talking about this convergence happens, right? That, you know, sort of the tide had turned after Prop 80, 187, 209. We polled the electorate when, when these types of bills were failing at the legislature. Mm -hmm. We just got money and started calling people all over California and found that the will of the voters was starting to be, we are wasting money on corrections. Like the recidivism mm -hmm. rate is at 70%, and we just keep pouring good money after bad, um, and then so we figured out also what the electorate was willing to vote for, and it passed by a pretty wide margin. So I'll pause there. There's more to talk about. And that's super helpful. It, it, just this idea of the tide is turning, right? The idea that we are talking about mass incarceration using those terms, 
criminal justice reform. So here's a tide turning that actually happened in real life this last November. Um, Amendment 4 in in Florida was passed with almost 65% of the vote. Yet, this was the same election, November 2018, where Rick Scott beat incumbent U.S. Senator Bill Nelson by 0.2%, and Ron DeSantis beat Andrew Gillum by 0.4% in the governor's race. So a 25% margin of victory for Amendment 4, and yet the top two tickets go to the Republicans. One, talk about Amendment 4. You don't expect me to explain that, do you? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Florida here. It's Florida we're talking about, okay? It's Florida. That's all you have to say. <laughs> Done. That's it. Done. No more. <laughs> so, um, it's been characterized as either the largest expansion of the eligible pool of voters from either from the women's suffrage or from the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, potentially 1.4 million eligible citizens might be able to register to vote in Florida as a result of what happened in November. Uh, And it's an amazing story. Yes. My office and I were doing election protection work in Florida. I deliberately chose Florida in November because I had this inkling that was going to pass, and I wanted to to make sure I was there for election night. Mm -hmm. And I was able to celebrate and party with all the leaders. And as I mentioned before about the litigation that was prisoner-led, the effort to restore the vote in Florida was also led by former incarcerated people, front and center. Um, It's difficult to understand how the politics of such an amendment would pass unless you recognize that um, when it comes to referenda, especially in a market as big as Florida's, and Californians, for that matter, somewhat different than Arizona, perhaps, in terms of just... The racism is the same, though. (laughs) That is true. That is true. But I'm talking about the actual number of markets, your media markets, your media buys, how much money you have to spend on a a statewide public referendum is significantly different. Mm -hmm. Um, About $1.6 million alone was dedicated by the ACLU of Florida just to pump support for Amendment 4. About $5 million was pumped into, easily five, by uh, philanthropy and leading by people like from the Open Philanthropy uh, Foundation. So we're looking at a lot. It's a multi-million dollar effort. That plus the fact that the Koch brothers got out the way. They just got out the way. Um, DeSantis opposed it. He ran and won for governor. Um, Scott opposed it. Uh, He ran and won for senator. I mean, they opposed it publicly. But there was no well-funded vote no campaign. So that's also a factor. Uh, the other factor is that this, is, this might be counterintuitive. African Americans were the disproportionate number of people who were affected by felon disfranchisement in Florida because for all the same reasons that they're disproportionately found in many uh, other states in terms of who gets imprisoned and who gets uh, convicted. Uh, but the, most of the data also showed that the total number of 1.5 million eligible citizens, that almost half of them were white. So the strategy, therefore, changed. The messaging was downplay the racial aspect, elevate the 
This is restorative. This is redemptive. Everyone believes in second chances. Now, doesn't, that doesn't always sit well with the communities that I work with. It didn't sit well at all with me for a long time. Um, and it, it's also, remember that Florida did a major thing by passing this, but it's also an incremental approach towards restoring the vote. Because in Puerto Rico, you can vote for your prison cell. And in Canada and in South Africa, you can vote for your prison cell. And in Vermont and Maine, you vote for the prison cell. So this notion that we're only going to give the vote to 1.5 million when you should be giving it to everybody else, A. And B, this other notion that let's treat people who commit murder differently is also an incremental approach. Not all of which will sit well with me and, and the people I work with all the time and the communities that I represent. But the big picture was, can we get this done? And maybe tomorrow we can fix something else. So I think those are some of the factors. The fact of the matter is that this was an incredible grassroots effort, door-to-door knocking. Uh, I can give you, uh, David Ayala from my office was instrumental. He works in my Orlando office. He was the regional coordinator, coordinator of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, one of the leading coalitions that founded it and spearheaded this. Desmond Mead is a hero in every sense of the word. He's been fighting this forever. These are two formerly incarcerated people. Latinos were also brought as profiles. Many Latinos who were formerly incarcerated, men, Latinas and Latinos, were profiled by the coalition. A lot of money went into buying um, media buys in the Spanish language. I heard excellent radio. Radio, by the way, is big in Central Florida. Um, and lastly, there was a small effort to try to get Puerto Ricans who did vote. You know, Puerto Ricanos exit in the island like every day. And Florida is a very popular destination. Um, but that whole notion that in Puerto Rico, the right to vote in prison in, is, safe, is jealously guarded. Um, attempts to try to get it undone have been fought back left and right. So that was another undercurrent here about how we can mobilize Latinos to vote in favor. Matt Barreto uh, yesterday gave me some polling data, pre-election polling data, the day before the election, which also includes... because. Florida has early voting. So people also were polled who actually had voted early voting. The data that he shared with me pre-election about how you will vote or how did you vote if you already voted early voting was very supportive for Latinos, about 62%. African Americans at 75%. Whites at 47%. National polling data that my office did that Matt alluded to this morning the national polling on Latinx opinions and experiences with criminal justice. National polling data shows that Latinos overwhelmingly support restoring the vote once you, quote, unquote, pay your debt to society. Overwhelmingly, including about 70% of Latino Republicans, 69% of Cubanos nationally, it's major, and we, it was the only national poll of Latinos' experiences who also disaggregates Afro-Latinos, they were in the low 80s in support of this as well. So this is a feature of rehabilitation that is really grounded in Latinx opinions and experiences about the criminal justice system in general, which bodes well for all the other work we want to do in all of our respective states. And that's really important. Go ahead, Tomas. I just wanted to comment on when you, your question on how is it that a, a uh, initiative that's so progressive like Amendment 4 can pass and you still have Republicans winning. And we, although the initiative we passed in 2016 wasn't criminal justice related, it was raising the minimum wage that won by 20 points in Arizona. 
we've seen the, we've seen data and it, and we've also done um, our own door-to-door -door canvassing and surveying and what we've learned is that voters resonate with issues the most and they doesn't necessarily tie to a political party there were Republicans that voted for Trump in 2016 that overwhelmingly voted for the minimum wage in Arizona in 2016. The fact of the matter is right now, folks on the Democratic side aren't doing enough to tie themselves to these truly progressive issues. Amendment 4 is a truly progressive issue. Um, it's something very left. And we have too many center, centrist Democrats that are afraid to tie themselves to something so incredible as Amendment 4. And when you don't do that, you, when you don't step up for your communities, you're not going to get the support. We live in an age now where if progressives want to win, communities of color have to uplift those progressives. And if progressives will not tie themselves to issues that resonate deeply with our communities, black and brown, and other communities of color, then we will not be successful um, as a progressive body to, to get elected in these offices. These initiatives are very expensive, millions of dollars, and so we need to make sure that we get good candidates from our communities that truly represent our issues. And this is an important point, um, and I'm gonna go to Jeanette too, because Jeanette can speak about the myriad of drug policies and reforms that are taking shape, have obviously taken shape here in California, MedMan, legalized cannabis, also Colorado under a Republican governor. But one of the things from your time in Sacramento was that there was a Democratic majority. There was not a Democratic supermajority. We had a Democratic governor for some of your tenure, and for you too, Marissa. And so ostensibly, party politics were there. We had more descriptive representation. There were certainly more black and Latino electeds up there. Um, however, in the context of drug policy, thinking through the ballot initiative process for the legalization of cannabis... What were the thoughts there? How are you moving that forward? And to what extent were Latinos meaningfully engaged in thinking through these campaigns? Yeah, I'm going to touch upon what Tomas just said. I think it's really important that we recognize that, you know, even within California as well, we have a whole uh, host of folks that are in the Capitol right now that are in that moderate centrist position, right? I mean, we saw a lot of districts, not only congressional districts, but state and assembly districts um, this past election that were flipped from Republican to Democrat. But we still have like, like a solid majority of moderates that are really centrist, really beholden to uh, you know, the business-friendly Democrats, we like to call them. And so what do you do when you have that, um, that mixture of folks that have the capability to actually pass um, policies that that tend to be progressive. I think it's really important that we continue to hold elected officials accountable. Just because they're black and brown doesn't mean that they're representing me or my issues. And so I think, um, and, and really being vocal about that. I mean, we even did that with the governor, um, Jer Jerry Brown, when he wouldn't pass the Trust Act back in 2011. Um, we had students go and wage a big sit-in in his office and the advocates in Sacramento um, got chastised because they said, you know, what are you doing? This is a Democratic governor. He's really good on these civil rights issues. You guys need to, like, you know, qu uh, calm the field down and coordinate. And so we, we kind of said, you know, they're in there independently, and they need to do what they need to do because their lives are on the line, right? They have family members that are on the line. If students want to go in and, and, and uh, have a sit-in, 
you know, they're, they're in their right, and this governor needs to know that we're ready to also continue that battle in and out of the Capitol, right? So make it, so really hold folks accountable. I think the other component that's uh, critical or that's important is, is, is when you look at um, these measures, um, you know, so part of the calculation is, you know, how are folks voting on some of the measures? As Marisa mentioned, um, you know, we worked on the bill to change the misdemeanor sentences from, from one day. Washington had done it, I think, 10 years before we did. And it took California, it took us at least two attempts to try to do that. And so when you recognize that there's these shortcomings within the legislative body, um, and when you look at polling, when you look at investments that you can make within the community, such as media, um, really examining these these measures, um, you you know you're able to use to utilize the the uh, the ballot box in terms of like in terms of making sure that folks have that immediate voice at the ballot box. And I think that's that's really important. I think the other piece in um, in California, you know, when we were running Prop 64, which legalized marijuana, at one point, the Latino vote was only split by one point. It was 47 against, 48 in favor. But we, uh, we invested about $4 million in doing uh, outreach, having town halls, having, you know, cafecitos at the community-based level, really really going to people, uh, meeting them where they're at, right? Latinos, we're, we're not homogenous, and we all know this. Um, we have very conservative folks in uh, within our community. We have folks that, you know, really follow or toe the line of, of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church came out in opposition of Prop 64, and so there was all these things that we really had to try to overcome. But if you meet people where they are, if you help connect the dots, how, you know, the criminal justice system is, in, is is really failing us, or educational system is failing us, and then you see how drug convictions really, really um, impact immigrants and Latinos, then you start connecting those dots and having those really um, honest conversations. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's how we were able to win Prop 64, without Latinos, without really reaching them where they're at, and um, having a, an open conversation about these issues, um, there's just no way we can win. And we know that these conversations are very much taboo within our community. And it's 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 also multi-generational, right? So the older our folks that are in the older range of our community, um, and I'm probably in that range too, so I'm going to say me and, 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 and other older folks um, are tend to be more conservative, but if we looked at the folks that were um, under 40, the millennials, they came out in real, real strong support, real high numbers on Prop 64. And this wasn't the state's first attempt at legalizing cannabis. So you're talking about something really important. And, and for me, as someone who is heavily interested in politics and democracy, you said the key word, intentional investment and outreach to Latinos. And that has a lot to do with why November 2018 turned out the way it was. For previous iterations of thinking through cannabis legalization, was there that intention? And I'll share, too, in California, there was not any meaningful engagement around Latino or black communities with Prop 8. And that's partially one of the reasons it failed. And I, and I think for our organization, that's true. I mean, um, I think I'm the first Latina state director at DPA for California. And, you know, congratulations. I, I do have the background in immigration law. <laughs> So my, my expertise is, is as an immigration attorney. Um, so I think it's really important that, that we have that investment. I, you know, I think we have really progressive organizations, as you mentioned, you know, that are led by, um, by white folks, by allies, but we really need to think about, you know, 
what what are the demographics? How do we get them? How do we meet them? Like I said, how do we meet them where they're really at? Because if we don't do that, if we don't engage people, if we don't help sort of also help to connect the dots, then there's no way we can make um, progressive change or meaningful change in the day-to-day -day lives of folks. And that's, that's one lesson that I think we learned um, from our failure in 2012 to our success in 2016. Awesome. Marissa? Yeah, um, this very important concept of meeting people where they're at is not just something that we say you really have to do it intentionally in terms of um, Prop 47, 64, 57, Amendment 4. Um, for CSJ, like I said, it was, it's a lot about organizing survivors and sort of all of the um, marginalized communities that are included there, but also um, we all know those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Mm -hmm. Brian Stevenson always, always says, um, I think it's Brian Stevenson, um, formerly incarcerated individuals were key uh, in uh, the campaign for Prop 47, but also Prop 57, where formerly incarcerated individuals would gather at Amity Foundation or ARC and make phone calls, and people would pick up the phone, and they would tell their story. I mean, it's, it, there's no getting around. When you humanize that story, you're going to convince a voter uh, on the other line. I'm always of, of the thought that you should, it shouldn't take humanizing it, you should just do the right thing, but that really worked. Um, and what's interesting, I've seen, I wouldn't call it an evolution, but this distinct sort of these lines in having formerly incarcerated individuals tell their stories, there's been this one point where it was all about second chances. We were really hammering home like, Individuals who have paid their debt to society, who are off of paper, um, deserve a ch second chance. It was redemption. Uh, clergy were very, you know, eager, and, you know, um, and able to preach that redemption, redemptive story. It didn't sit well with everyone. What's interesting is, at some point, that approach landed with some people as. Well, are you just telling me you just deserve this? Like I should just like give you a second chance? You know, how many chances did you have before? It's somehow what some people were hearing. Well, that is, goes back into the three strikes rhetoric. Yeah, exactly, and um, and all of those <laughs> my uh, minutia were coming up, but somehow it landed as, and it it didn't sit well to begin with with certain formerly incarcer incarcerated individuals, and there was this new this sort of shift in the messaging, especially for Prop 57, and now our our time done campaign with formerly incarcerated individuals saying, um, I really have a responsibility to contribute to my community. I really want to get back to work. There are all these barriers, but I have a responsibility to my family and to the community, and that's going to make everyone safer. And that's, I mean, that's a big burden, um, I think, to put on individuals to sort of um, say it that way. But when you meet people where they're at, the way the story and the messaging and the framing and the narrative are done and the way it's landed, I mean, it's a constant learning process. I think uh, with Amendment 4, uh, we worked, uh, CSJ also worked on Amendment 4, but the sort of breadth of support from, you know, Latin, Latino evangelicals, yes, big, veterans big, groups, um, it, I mean, Amendment 4 is, is huge. So anyway. Uh, let's throw that, I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned that and reminded me. Uh, the Latino evangelical churches were super supportive of this. Why do you think that is? Um, well, remember, a, well, let's step back a second. Yeah. It's 2019. I cannot tell you any time that I've spoken to any group of people at any level, 
in various communities in which if I ask the question, is anybody here, has anybody who's been involved in the criminal justice system? A good half of you will raise your hand. I mean, we are talking about a crisis, a slow-moving crisis that everybody's finally trying to acknowledge. And that is raising the groundswell of, of some parties thinking about reform. I mean, although it's not going to drop out of the sky tomorrow, but we still have to fight like crazy to get it, and we got to make sure that when we get it, we improve it. Um, but the evangelicals were just looking at this from a restorative concept, and a lot of people, the young, the young pastor who I saw who was, he's leading a major church in Central Florida, his own father was a pastor in Brooklyn, and his own father was incarcerated when he was young. Hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we all have a story, and we all have a connection to the system. We know how the system eats you up and spits you out, and they know they want to make you fail. And then you have to live with these consequences for the rest of your life, and we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen again. And, and when you, this term mass incarceration really resonates with a lot of people, a lot of advocates, a lot of voters. It doesn't sometimes with families who are like, oh, um, for many reasons, th- just yeah. the term mass incarceration. But when you talk about family, and neighbors, and my father. I, you know, at, at justice fairs, at expungement clinics, we had a huge one in 2015. There were whole families coming up, and there would be Latino parents who had a conviction for simple mar- uh, marijuana possession from years ago that you never talk about, right? It's right. just, there's a stigma, there's a shame. They knew about it. It was creating barriers in their life, but we're just going to work through it. We never talk about it. We're not part of the mass incarceration right. impact. But when you talk about families, and to see... Latino families, I mean, I'm just going to cry if I talk about it. I mean, it really, this is human beings we're talking about. And I want to point something out, because in thinking about this panel, it was not just about this unicorn of sorts of thinking through affirmative policy happening in jurisdictions that are not known for it, Um, and affirmative policy that actually advances the needs and the positionality of Latinos. We're in two different places. When we passed Prop 47, Donald Trump was not in the White House. Mm -hmm. And so there was a way that there were culturally sensitive and culturally competent ways to implement the law. So it's not enough that it passed. It's not enough that sometimes it integrated Latino voices and or perspectives and needs. But Marisa, can you talk about the implementation of it? And then I'd love to hear from the rest of the panel, how do we move forward with cultural and linguistic competency in the terror that we live in? Yes. So this has also been a fascinating, depressing Mm -hmm. uh, thing to watch evolve. So Prop 47 passed in 2014. Um, One thing I'll also add that made things very complicated is the most vocal opponents to Prop 47 or right up until Election Day was law enforcement. And the day it passed, the next day, law enforcement is responsible for implementing Prop 47 and adjusting policies and practices, and local governments uh, are responsible for that. So that is, makes implementation very difficult. And if you, it's, if you pass an innovative um, state reform and it just gets overlaid on traditional outdated structures in 58 different counties and so you do things 58 different ways, it's very hard for that reform to be successful and, and to work in the way that it's supposed to work. And when it doesn't, it's very easy to criticize the reform and say, see, reform doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're thinking about criminal justice reforms at the state level, I mean, there's so much work that goes into it ahead of time and the language has to be just right. And then 
uh, our funders were ready to, they were like, okay, you passed Prop 47, we're done, great. And Lenore was like, no, I mean, clearly implementation is going to be a problem. So I joined for implementation. And what we discovered uh, for implementation challenges is first, no one um, had really uh, done a survey or tried, there were some spitball estimates before Prop 47 passed about how many people exactly were going to be eligible Mm -hmm. for it. And no one really knew. And so when during the negotiation process of, of the language, we said, we also want to make it retroactive, and nothing had been made retroactive before, and we want to capture the savings from reducing the prison population and reallocate it to prevention. So it's like those two things had never been like sneaked into, into a bill, and no one really knew how many people it would, imp- it would impact. Sure, let's make it retroactive. How hard could it be? Well, by the time it, it passed, people were like, there's like a million, there, there might be as many as a million or more Californians eligible for Prop 47. How in the world do we reach them? N- not just the individuals who have moved, but Latino communities with language issues, Latino communities where there's a stigma, who's going to show up you know, at a live scan event with their rap sheet. Um, so before the 2016 election, September 2015, we had this huge um, justice fair in Expo Park We'd never done anything like this. No one had ever done anything like this before. We didn't know how many people would show up. We thought a thousand or so. Five thousand people showed up, and they started lining up with lawn chairs at two or three in the morning. And the gates weren't going to open until eleven. So when I showed up at six for setup, I was like, there was a line of people waiting with their rap sheets to get in. And we had 150 attorneys, you know, assisting people. And like I said, families coming up. Now this is before the election, right? So. There's a a critical mass of 5,000 individuals with convictions gathered at Expo Park. So one, security was like, oh my God, there's going to be a riot. Who knows what's going to happen? And on the other end of the spectrum, people were like, do I want to be in a group of a bunch of people? I don't know. Like, is this like a sweep? What's going to happen? So there were some of those early fears. People showed up. Um, After the election, after 2016, and then as the rhetoric ramps up, you know, we would we would help fund free live scan events because you can't try and do Prop 47 without getting your entire rap sheet, and it takes live scanning. So, and we thought we'll just translate the flyer, come get your free, you know, huellas digitales, your free fingerprints, and we're doing it in safe spaces. And after 2016, how many? immigrant families are going to show up anywhere. Yeah, here, take my fingerprints. I don't know you. We're at a park. We did it in in San Joaquin, too, in Stockton. And it is very... So, first of all, there's like a million people eligible. It was hard to get to them anyway. And now we have this horrendous rhetoric across the country that makes everything very scary to access. Um, And so we have to think about that in implementation. And there are ways to get at um, these uh, communities, uh, but it makes it way harder than it used to be. Tomas, you're you're in the Arizona sun. Yeah. um, It it, it takes a multifaceted approach. Um, We could pass all the initiatives Mm -hmm. that we want and and hope for implementation to be the best, but if we have prosecutors that are willing to smack somebody with a felony, uh, for for their first offense, that can be something that can be incredibly damaging. And so for us, it's really about gathering our communities and, and not just having formerly incarcerated tell their stories. Because as great as that is, 
this type of movement needs to be led by those most directly impacted. And so what we aim to do is, first, we want to build leadership amongst our community. So over the last year, we've had um, monthly uh, uh, cafecitos, but we call them chilaquiles and cheese, man. Oh, nice. So, oh, yeah. write that down. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for in English translation, we do burritos and briefings, you know, to keep it, keep it alive. <laughs> And what we would do in these is obviously we have some good chilaquiles. Um, and Phoenix actually has gotten better Mexican food. Y'all should try it for sure. Um, but as we've gone in, not only do we eat and we celebrate culture, we also have a political education. We talk about the history of criminalization. We talk about the stigma. We address the fact that there is generational disagreements amongst communities of color, especially Latinos, in terms of Sometimes there's, there's still a lot of us that believe that if you're caught up in the system, it's your own fault. And so we do a lot of unpacking, really deep dives about how do we get people to understand that this is a system built by white men to serve white men. Mm -hmm. This system is working perfectly because it does not include communities of color in it. And so we talk about those issues. And then we take their ideas and we do our very best to create policies. And we introduce them in the legislature. So we've introduced uh, three speak freedom bills in this session. One that eliminates probation fees for anybody at or near the poverty line. The other is similar where we uh, take undesign undesignated felonies and um, move them towards misdemeanors once uh, someone completes their obligations. And the third one... Um, would be to get rid of the three strikes. We still have three strikes in Arizona, so our uh, our third policy would do just that. One could pass, and um, we're very hopeful for that, but that's given our community a level of power that you can't create. Like When someone feels empowered, when someone knows that their words are now on a piece of paper that could change millions of lives, it creates this just this amazing feeling. And um, another thing that we're doing is community defense support. Uh, there's an amazing organization in San Jose here called Debug. Debug has these community defense projects where um, if somebody is caught up in the system, they work with their families to create a case so that they're able to present a, a better case when, when that individual goes to court. Um, and many times public defenders are swamped. They don't have time to even get to know the client's last name, let alone build a case. So these family members who really are, are tense and are urgent because their family member is locked up now have the ability to create uh, a portfolio so to try to get them out. And so that is what we try to do. We try to educate, we try to build up leadership, and then we get, try to get them to run. Because our goal eventually is to get some of these formerly incarcerated, incarcerated individuals, our community members, to run for these offices. Because they're the ones that are going to pass real legislation that helps us all. Awesome. So this is going to be a rapid fire, and I'm going to ask each of you a question. And then we're going to leave it up to the audience to, to close us out. One, what do you think are the priorities, having litigated and been successful and also failed around these issues of criminal justice, if there were priorities for ballot initiatives, where do you think we need to start or continue? Uh, money bail. Money bail. Get rid of money bail completely, permanently, and not incrementally, but knock it out. Abolish ICE. Get rid of it. Um... And I actually think uh, along the lines of Amendment 4, uh, restore the vote to people in prison. I just testified in Trenton on behalf of a bill that was actually restore, would restore the vote to people in prison, on probation, on parole. In New York, they just proposed a bill to restore the vote permanently for people um, uh, on parole with no restrictions. 
I refuse to I refuse to endorse a New York bill. Yeah. In fact, I'm not going to endorse any bill that does not completely restore the rights of all people in prison. Hmm. Thomas, you come to us after a successful Fair Wages and Families Act Prop 206, which you alluded to, which won by margin of almost 20 points. How does that campaign, and then what you've heard here and, and know about, both in terms of Florida, California, and a lot of the cannabis um, legalization, inform your 2020 agenda? Uh, it's, well, so many ways. Um, so similarly, when we passed Prop 206, the one thing that we were very, very, very much grounded in is the fact that this initiative was brought by community color, communities of color. This initiative was uh, fundraised by communities of color. It should be led by those communities of color. So many times, if you work in politics, you have to deal with the consultant group, which is usually a bunch of usually white males um, who have just a real good, uh, uh, deep relationships in D.C. And so most initiatives are 100, the vast majority is paid media, commercials, um, radio ads. And they're great, and they get the message out, but you don't leave anything built in our communities when you only focus on paid media. Mm -hmm. So we made sure that we created a community organizing project around it. We only spent about a, we spent $5 million on the initiative, which is cheap for, for a lot of spots. And Two-thirds of that was just community organizing, and we ended up building a huge base of 2,400 dues-paying members for Lucha in three different counties in Arizona, um, and it's been able to create an infrastructure that led us to record-breaking um, vote in 18, as a lot of the nation did, and for us in marijuana, it failed in 2016 because communities of color were not included. There wasn't a criminal justice component to that, uh, to that initiative, and that's why it died, because communities of color were not included. And so um, for marijuana in 2020, it's likely to come back. We are making sure that we will be in those conversations, that our communities in those conversations. And there is a criminal justice component, because one thing that we have to recognize is that the only reason weed is legal now is because people can make money off of it. And it's not our communities that make money, but they still have the felonies. And that's something we deeply have to correct uh, if we want to move forward. And in terms of the criminal justice system, we need, a, we need a complete start over. We need to go back to mental health, go back to drug um, rehabilitation, and we have to divest from prisons. There's no reason why we should have the most people in prison in the world in this country when we have so many resources and abilities to help people out. Yeah, thank you for that, Thomas. Marisa, what's on your agenda? Now, um, California's for Safety and Justice is now the Alliance for Safety and Justice, and what are you thinking about in terms of the way that you architect viable and structural policy reforms on these issues? Yeah. So we have, uh, there's still Californians for Safety and Justice. I'm uh, a part of that organization, with Alliance for Safety and Justice, all the other states. The easy ones like Ohio, Texas, Florida, <laughs> Illinois, partnering yeah, with um, Juan. Um, and so we. So what's on? What's next on the agenda? Um, we have three initiatives within which we're going to uh, pursue our goals. We have this hashtag Time Done campaign. You can Google Time Done. Um, that grew from the Second Chances campaign. It's still part of Second Chances. And the um, primary approach there is automatic sunset of felony convictions. You should not have to pay money, apply, go to an attorney um, or legal aid, uh, and it should be, you know, ideally X number of years. Some people are going to, you know, fight for 10 years or something and no other arrest or something while you're on supervision, but automatic, automatic um, uh, 
expungement of felony convictions. We have crime survivors for safety and justice. This is where we started uh, organizing uh, crime survivors, specifically crime survivors from marginalized, uh, unseen, unheard communities. Uh, and we say communi communities that are the most harmed by daily community violence, the most harmed are the least helped by the traditional approach to safety, which is um, policing, not protection. It's patrol, it's, it's not protection. So we really organize uh, survivors from those communities and there's a leadership track. Um, we just had three of our chapter coordinators advance into leadership positions. One is now the state director of California uh, Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, who came up from um, as a survivor and sort of her own community leadership. And so we want to do that across the country. Um, we take, uh, we, during Crime Survivors Week, April 8th, the week of April 8th, we have a conference, Survivor Speak, in Sacramento. It's grown. It's now about six or 700 survivors from across the country. We have a day of workshops. Last year, the governor candidates came and spoke in response to survivor platform. What are the survivor issues that the governor should speak to? Um, so, and on Tuesday of that week, we march to the Capitol, and there's advocacy done at the Capitol. Uh, the primary approach there is trauma recovery centers, TRCs in schools, TRCs in communities, access to mental health, behavioral health, trauma counseling at the community-based level. Again, uh, calling mental health services when there's a dire situation, not a policing source. And then my initiative is the Blueprint for Shared Safety. I work across um, the California, we're doing this nationally too, you just mentioned this, is we have to rethink uh, safety. We have to just not only ignore the punishment first, punishment only model, um, but my initiative at sharedsafety.us. So I deal with law enforcement. I work with law enforcement and government. I'm a systems person and have worked with law enforcement for many years. So I'll speak with police chiefs about reimagining the safety system um, and we'll say safety is more than the absence of crime. It's got to be the presence of well-being. When you only measure safety by crime rates and arrest rates and whether, whether crime has gone up or down, what does that really say about safety? Half of all crime isn't even reported. So when you see uh, police chiefs or law enforcement just doubling down on crime rates, crime rates are up, they've spiked. We're at the lowest they've been in decades. Any uptick up is gonna be called a spike by law enforcement. So safety is more than the absence of crime. We've got to invest in well-being. I was speaking with a police chief recently who said, you know, law enforcement and corrections, my department, I'm an expense to the county. But prevention programs, that's an investment in our community. And that investment will allow me as law enforcement to address really violent crimes, human trafficking. Uh, people call me for homeless issues, which are very important. They're impact business, but we shouldn't be calling the police. So that's what I'm trying to work on across the state. Yeah, it's very robust and very in-depth and, and triaged about evidence and the way that data informs it. Jeanette, you know, some closing thoughts of how Criminal justice reform, which includes drug policy, can meaningfully integrate Latino communities. So, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me think about it for a second. Um, you know, I, I think it's just, it's really important. I think, um, you know, the, the other component about drug policy is, you know, for Latinos, um, you know, there's definitely this connection that folks that use drugs are bad people, and um, there's no other, you know, side um, or there, there aren't any other collateral consequences. But we know that there are, right? We know that families are torn apart, people are incarcerated. Um, the incarceration rates for women who happen to be partners of folks who may be involved um, 
with the sale or possession of drugs is also a huge issue for our community. And so really looking at those issues and um, kind of examining those issues and understanding how it all fits within the criminal justice system, I think is, is really critical. I mean, I think, um, you know, we all like to, we all like to think about sort of connecting the dots on a, on a larger scale, but I also think it's, it's important to just connect the dots on a more basic scale. Like I said, kind of meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, I had a quick conversation with someone the other day about taking my daughter's volleyball team to go watch Cal um, volleyball, um, have the Cal uh, college volleyball uh, team play a game, and we took um, a bunch of eighth graders to go get pizza, and two people um, overdosed on heroin right outside of the pizza place. And so I had to have the conversation with my daughter and with the kids that I was taking about what had just happened. And when you think about those incidences, you know, if we have things in place like drug policy, we have true meaningful reform where people could actually be treated first and not be criminalized, have access to services, mental health, wraparound services, even services around the homelessness issue in LA. Homelessness is a big issue. How do we how do we tie those issues together to really address these issues? And and how do we make it a lot easier so that when someone does see someone that is maybe passed out on the street, um, instead of just kind of popping over and kind of making sure they're still breathing, like knowing that there's actually some mm-hmm. services that folks can access without being criminalized or prosecuted is really critical. It makes all of us feel a little bit better in terms of how do we connect that person with services as opposed to calling 911 and potentially having that person end up in jail, mm-hmm. right? And so those are real issues that face our communities and how do we talk about these issues um, in a way that they can understand at the most basic level, which is where it touches them. Yeah. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for traveling and for your work, for your work for justice. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.